Good afternoon and welcome to Adaptive Risk Management, balancing organizational growth and innovation with security, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by CrowdStrike. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. Nice way to view the screen. Click on the top center, get in side-by-side mode, then you can adjust the divider to get the video boxes and the slides the size you want them, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Ron Merring, Chief Information Security Officer with Texas Health Resources, Sanjeev Sah, VP and CISO with Centura Health, and Drex DeFord, Executive Healthcare Strategist with CrowdStrike. So lots of stuff to talk about. Let's jump right in. Ron, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Anthony. Um, once again, my name is Ron Maring. Um, I serve as the Chief Information Security Officer for Texas Health Resources. I have a bit of a blended role at Texas Health Resources, where I serve and lead the um, technology operations as well as healthcare technology management uh, for, for the uh, company. Um, Texas Health Resources is located in North Texas, predominantly in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. We're a faith-based nonprofit integrated healthcare delivery system with around 29 hospitals and a slew of other underlying clinics and extended uh, services we provide to our communities. And that's who we are. Thanks, Anthony. All right. Very good, Ron. Thank you. Sanjeev? Hi, Anthony. Thank you. Uh, my name is Sanjeev Sah. I serve as Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer for Centura Health. Uh, we are caregivers on a mission to healing individuals and uplifting communities while advancing whole person care across Colorado and Kansas. Our ecosystem includes thousands of experts, 17 hospitals, clinics, and, and, and providers. Uh, as a security officer, as a technologist, um, I work to enable business capabilities, partnering with my stakeholders and partners uh, with innovation in mind. Excellent. Thank you. Drex? Uh, hi, I'm Drex DeFord. <clears throat> I'm a longtime recovering CIO, uh, having served in the U.S. Air Force as a CIO, Scripps Health, Seattle Children's, and Stewart Healthcare. Uh, I'm now the executive healthcare strategist at CrowdStrike, one of the one of healthcare's leading cybersecurity companies. We help secure critical areas of enterprise risk as a driver of our mission to stop breaches. All right, very good, Drex. Thank you. All right, mm-hmm. Sanjeev, let's start with you on this. Do you agree with the idea of CISO as chief risk officer? Do you agree with the idea that CISOs aren't risk owners, but risk conveyors? And if so, how do these ideas help you to be effective? Yeah, that's a really wonderful question. And I would also be interested in perspectives of my uh, panelists here. But let me start by saying, in my view, we are risk officers um, with the goals of serving and supporting uh, our mission, but at the same time, enabling safeguards and controls to protect the organization and hand in hand managing uh, cyber risk. So we are most effective when we play both roles 
um, uh, with the expertise and teams and capabilities that we have at our disposal uh, in, in one uh, scenario where we're enabling uh, safeguards and controls, it's really important to not lose sight of uh, our roles as uh, people who help enable those capabilities to protect the organization. At the same time, why are we doing that? And that perspective does come from us uh, in our roles, serving as risk officer, finding and having a place uh, at the executive table in a way that we can then uh, promote uh, why we do what we do and then gain their support and understanding of the right actions to take to again manage risk for the organization. Uh, remembering that patient care, uh, business operation and um, uh, patient safety is at risk when cyber risks are exposed. Very good. Ron, you know, from what Sanjeev's saying, it's it really is a delicate balancing act. Is is that how you would describe it? it that's how I what I heard, that there's a lot of nuances and you have to be deft in this role. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you get into the role, no, number one, I don't believe uh, a, a chief information security officer is a chief risk officer. That's a that's a broader role within an organization has to deal with a multitude of company level risks that go beyond what a chief information security would manage. But I wholeheartedly agree what Sanjeev was saying regarding these different nuances and how we apply protection strategies. What is key though, and I think what is emerging out of the chief information security officer role, and I definitely think Sanjeev got to that point, is how important it is that this type of role as a chief information security officer really integrates into the enterprise level decision making of the organization. I mean, the title of this of this uh, of this seminar essentially is you know mergers and acquisitions and adaptive risk. Uh, these things are happening at the corporate level, and and um, they are asked, starting more and more to ask questions about what does this mean? What does this mean from a technology risk perspective? Um, to our organizations and CISOs more often now have to be able to answer those questions and it has and you can't answer those questions unless you have a really deep understanding of how um, the interplay of technology and risk within the overall ecosystem of the organization. So I wholeheartedly believe that what you just said. Absolutely. Well, Ron, what does it take to have that that understanding? I mean, you probably need to have time with the organizations to understand everything that's going on maybe more difficult for a new CISO coming into an organization to have that grasp of where hidden risk lies. What are your thoughts around that? Well, the first thing is most of the identification of risk in the enterprise is, is probably not even done by the CISO, although they have a view on risk. the risk is. It really has to do about building relationships and understanding that you have to build a, a diverse stakeholder audience within your organization and bringing them in to, to get their uh, views on what actually is risk and is not risk and to help pull on those uh, threads within each um, uh, each area of, of discovery that kind of leans itself toward this is a problem of some type of exposure is having those other stakeholders come in and say, hey, yeah, you're right, that is a problem. And not only is it a problem here, that problem extends into those other areas because of the way we operate. So building relationships is really, really a big part of this. 
So, Drax, that's all very interesting. The the idea that as a CISO, you're relying somewhat on the individuals in the organization. You have to build trust with them because you need them to tell you about certain areas of risk. I remember we had Aaron Miri on recently, and he said it was very – he had this – stop the line mentality he wanted mm. his people to have if you see something wrong stop say something yeah. shut it down stop and he said if ever i do anything to diminish that level of engagement or to make them reluctant to come to me and tell me something's wrong i'm in a very dangerous place but when we have that communication i feel okay it was one of those what will help you sleep at night questions so what are your thoughts about that yeah, I mean, I'm a Toyota production systems guy, I have been for years, and I've actually been lucky enough to <clears throat> spend time in Japan. I lived for three and a half years in Tokyo, and and so the whole idea of stopping the line when there's a there's a malfunction in the process is uh, is very important to me too. And I think you know when you hear folks like Aaron Mary talk about it, you see how um, these techniques have been integrated into. Uh, major health systems into the way that we think about these processes uh, as the into the ways that we think about risk. And um, a lot of that ability to create the culture that will allow people in the organization to raise their hand and not think they're going to get slapped because they're pointing something out, but actually um, that that situation where they're asking for help is actually a strength and not a weakness. Um, that asking for help, that identifying a risk is a strength. That's an important part of their job. It's not something they should be, um, you know, uh, uh, punched in the throat for. It's a hard thing, I think, for a lot of organizations to create. People want to keep their head down and just do their job and, you know, keep keep going. As you make that change in culture, um, it can be very difficult, but I think it's incredibly important, especially in this environment. We talked about the chief risk officer yesterday. Everyone kind of has to be in that mode of being a risk officer and finding risk and pointing it out, not necessarily harping on it, but being comfortable enough to say, this is a thing I think that could be a problem for us. And my boss needs to know about it. The chief risk officer needs to know about it. The CISO needs to know about it. So creating that environment, incredibly important to doing the stuff we're talking about here today, which is, you know, identifying risk and then figuring out how do you continue to sort of mold and modify your programs to be able to account for a, a very dynamic, changing risk world that we live in today. So, uh, Drex, uh, as I hear um, your thoughts and comments and, and Ron's, uh, what came to mind is that, you know, in the role that, that we play as CISOs, the risk perspective, there's an audience uh, for that at the enterprise level, right? And these are typically your risk committees, uh, executives, operational leaders. And in the manner that we we represent cyber risk in the construct of overall enterprise risk, uh, and then have perspectives from our stakeholders on, you know, what it, what would it take to really manage that risk? That has to be an organized process by which um, uh, uh, these um, risks are highlighted. The way you have mitigation plans around that, and the way you report that uh, progress uh, with committees and the board of trustees. Um, and to Ron's point, uh, a lot of that also depends on the, the relationship aspects. Have we been able to 
become a trusted advisor, mm-hmm. uh, someone someone that organization then relies on for representing cyber risk uh, in a way that uh, considers uh, uh, a wider perspective than just cyber. The second point I wanted to make, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we can manage risk at the risk register level, but our people uh, and the safeguards and controls remain the strongest uh, aspect of how we would address those risks. And to your points, uh, we want to create a culture, we want to have an environment where no one is afraid or shy of reporting risk or an opportunity when they see it. And that's the culture that we're we are working uh, to not just employ and build, but really promoting uh, as risk officers, as as security officer on a day-to-day basis. So, yeah. so go oh, ahead. If you don't mind, Sanjeev. I'll just add one more thing to that. And we, because when you get into risk registers, and especially in these complex environments that we that we live in within healthcare, one of the um, most important things when you get into prioritization and what work needs to be done today, tomorrow, next year, or never done, by the way, uh, you need a way to negotiate and to build up um, transparency in, in that risk environment. The thing that you're saying, here are all these risks. Um, you only can get so much done at one time. And there are risks that, frankly, you're just going to carry or transfer uh, you can't do that without actually having a risk mindset. And it is becoming more and more difficult to prioritize resources and labor and, and all the financial components toward uh, resolving um, more, the more, I would say, more aggressive um, kind of targeted attack vectors we see today. So it's really important going forward that CISOs really try and build a robust uh, risk management architecture that um, really kind of fleshes out those details for really good decision making. It'll become more and more important, um, especially in healthcare delivery systems, as the pressures of costs and everything that's going on in that space um, as we move forward in that area. Thanks. Ron, any thoughts on what that takes to build that robust risk management architecture? Uh, time and patience. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh, that's the first thing. I, I think the first thing is you you start from the all the the blocking and tackling all need to exist if you want a really good risk universe and a risk registry process. Uh, so the the foundational how you define needs and controls and whether or not those controls are effective and the analysis processes around those things all fold into uh, developing a really robust risk universe and risk registry. Uh, process that you can articulate outward uh, to other stakeholders in the organization, but it really has to do with the underpinning. You can't, it's hard to start start from the top and say, I'm going to build a risk universe and then build it down. All those things underneath the hood that provide depth and understanding and reduce uncertainty, at least understand what is uncertain, what is not, um, is what help really define risk in uh, these complex areas. What, what, what you know and what you don't know. Ron, Ron is being very modest here. He has a really uh, pretty incredible um, strategy around building risk at Texas Health Resources. And we talked about it, um, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. And he went through it with me. And 
I mean, I think the, you know, there's a, there's a couple of different ways to sort of think about risk and talk about risk when you're talking to peers and transparency is a huge part of this, but one of them is emotion, right? And in the world of cybersecurity, we often talk about that as fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And that's been done a lot and it's still being done a lot and it's pretty used up. And I think scaring people has only moved cybersecurity as a needle and as an evaluation of risk. It's only moved it so far. And so most of the people in our business are really kind of tired of hearing that approach. But the other one is to educate, right? And this is a lot of what I think Ron and Sanjeev have done at their organizations, educating the organization about um, uh, the risk that is there. There's so many great tools to be able to do things like drive business value analysis. We have some great tools at CrowdStrike that help you know, kind of understand what your spend is against a particular risk and the value that's realized after the fact. And then there's so many organizations that have been breached and associated costs that are available now for us to be able to draw on that we can actually create some pretty legitimate numbers about what a particular risk might cost if we don't deal with it or if we only partially deal with it. But back to Ron's point, being transparent and putting it all out there and letting everyone see it very, very important, you know, so kind of less FUD, less emotion, more facts about the risks that are there and the business value that comes from the investments in cybersecurity. Drex, do we, so we think that uh, traditional um, IT security departments in hospitals, obviously we'll stick talking about hospitals, um, may have been in a bad place in the past. And, and it was more about slapping hands when somebody clicked on a bad link, you know, little discipline type thing, and then slowing things down. So when security came in the room, it was like, oh my God, forget it. The project's dead. They're going to slow everything down. We want to transform. And I don't know what percentage of departments are still in that sort of adversarial role, but we're saying we need to transform from being hand slapping and slowing things down to being a true partner, getting that transparency and trust, because that's the only way we're going to know about the risk, creating a security culture where people embrace security and understand the point and why it's going to help us uh, get to the mission and get the mission done. Do you see that as a transformation that is still ongoing and many are not there? I mean, I, I think, you know, I am lucky enough in my job today to be able to work with a lot of CIOs and CISOs and chief operating officers and others at health systems across the country. And I can tell you that when, you, when you've seen one, you've seen one. Um, there, there's a huge amount of variation in what's uh, in the CISOs domain. There's a huge amount of variation in what's in the CIOs domain uh, right on down the line. And so um, I think, yes, there, we're in a transition. We've not made it across the gap. Some are further along. I think that in Ron and Sanjeev's uh, you know, particular cases, they're much further along than many other organizations in the country. And that really does kind of going back to, I feel like we're kind of harping on it now, but it really does go back to building those relationships and having transparency and helping everyone understand their role in this. There's people process technology and all of these things. And the technology um, from a technology company, the technology turns out maybe to be the easiest part of this. The people in the process parts are the parts that keep us up at night and keep us in trouble because we can't get those parts 
um, aligned. And, uh, and so uh, every organization is in a slightly different place, but I think aspirationally, you should be moving toward that more, you know, better relationships, you know, more transparency. That's what's going to ultimately win the game here. All right. Very good. Let's, let's move on to the next question. Um, Ron, let's start with you. When presented with a technology situation or scenario, how do you ascribe a particular level of risk to it so that the business owners can decide if they wish to accept that risk? What is your preferred way of describing risk to those business leaders? And do you employ storytelling or do you need to be more concrete? I think Drex was saying that you have a pretty good system uh, you've got going over there. Tell us a little bit more about it. Sure. Well, first thing is we have all the standard things that most organizations probably have at this point or are building, which is kind of some canned checklists and some general orientation to understand what exactly the new technology is. How is it interacting with the system? A lot of this comes down to making sure you've placed the right people in front of that uh, new technology, new initiative to say, hey, what is this and how is it interacting with the environment? Now, when we get into actually really analyzing the risk component, um, in an integrated healthcare delivery system, you we, have, we end up taking two views on this. And the first thing is the safety view, and then the kind of the privacy and confidentiality view. And then that's all surrounded by reliability and continuity objectives, because all those things come around and have to flow into what exact, how what is the actual true risk of that new technology or that thing interacting with our environment. And I think what's key on that is um, understanding what the technology will be in your environment and how it will interact. Remember, we're talking about very complex, these these worlds that we live in are very (laughs) nonlinear. They're nonlinear systems. I mean, there's a lot of change that just kind of goes on in these environments that are very unpredictable at times. We think everything's predictable because we manage it, but we know from history, things can be fairly random at times. So what we want is... Um, to build a, a front-end um, uh, survey, if you will, of the system that helps us understand how it's going to interact. And then next, yes, storytelling is a bit a part of that. We use kind of uh, scenarios that are more worded that um, somebody who is not a security professional <laughs> will understand kind of what we're looking for. So we build it more into kind of a scenario, a bit of a story kind of, but more of a scenario saying, hey, under this particular circumstance, does it handle these problems? So it could be as simple as password um, complexity rules, very simple, but we write that more as a story. We don't say, hey, do you use a particular technology or encryption or things like that, that they wouldn't understand what we do is we build a scenario to say, would you prevent this from happening? And in many technology scenarios, what is key in this is that Um, when you are interacting with the stakeholders of that technology that the right people are being brought in. And this is a little bit of the plumbing, but just because somebody in the organization brings the technology in doesn't mean they know how it works. You have to partner with vendors and other folks that can help more clearly understand the overall use of that system. By the way, not only the use for the intended use, but the uses that might uh, fall around that system, not all there's an intended use And then there are uses that fall outside of that, that will either uh, grow over time or become unintended uses in the way it interacts with the environment. So we usually pull on these threads on the front end through survey questions and um, making sure we have the right people in the room. So that's kind of the way we do it at a very, 
I didn't say it in a very technical way, but uh, that's kind of the way we handled that. Ron, quick uh, point for clarification. The discussions you, you're describing, are they being had between your department and the internal stakeholders that want the technology or between your department and the vendor? Both, actually. Um, so, um, and I would just say is um, a security program has to latch on to other processes. I, um, they, they latch on to IT governance processes, IT architectural processes, they latch on to, let's say, business architects that are working or those business analysts that are working into the different uh, services of the organization to understand what's going on. We bring them in and we analyze it as a collective to figure out what's going on. We document that. And then we, um, if necessary, we start bringing in uh, the vendors of that platform to help articulate even more where the um uh, where the internal stakeholder could not answer those questions. And it happens actually quite often where sometimes the vendors only, only know, are the only folks that understand how something might work. Right, absolutely. Sanjeev, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, Ron uh, did a masterful job of describing um, how this uh, process uh, should work um, in an organization. Uh, we leverage a very similar construct in that we have a minimum um, security standards that we uh, communicate, explain, educate our audience with. And the audience can be a, a technical member, uh, a, a business uh, owner, a, a risk um, uh, executive, uh, or a vendor partner. Uh, in, in, in most scenarios, what we attempt to do is provide a information security evaluation and a risk perspective for a given solution or a given topic. So for example, um, let's say a new software is to be acquired by a business owner for HR um, purposes. We would evaluate that in its full construct, we provide a feedback that's twofold. One, you know, the full depth of technical evaluation and second, uh, a narrative that is much more business friendly or a audience friendly in terms of how we communicate that risk position to, to our stakeholder community. Um, so it's a combination of approach really at the end of the day, it's, it's, uh, it's fact-based so that uh, people have an opportunity to look at how risk is evaluated and be able to uh, over time, if not day one, be able to improve their own understanding of uh, how information security looks at risk, what are the controls um, that we're evaluating a particular um, a proposal for, and how do we really come up with uh, um, a disposition in terms of what risk it poses. And then conversation on that with the business stakeholder in the manner that we are able to then tell that story is extremely important because what I have found is that stakeholders want us to involve in uh, them in a conversation where they have the ability to ask uh, questions of us and be able to explain uh, our rationale and then come to a consensus on a path forward. Uh, so maybe addressing issues that we've identified or saying, you know, the, the vendor will need to comply with A, B, and C, and that will give us ability to be ready for acquiring that uh, software example that I leverage. And in, in all of it, really, uh, uh, we develop a trust uh, equation with our stakeholder, 
where we're able to give a formalized uh, feedback. We're able to entertain and be in a dialogue where we can provide a meaningful uh, conversation with meaningful feedback where partners feel like they can approach security and be able to get a uh, transparent response. And if new information should change our position on a given topic, we go ahead and do it. We don't hold on to uh, the old position just because uh, you know that was arrived with a uh, limited set of information. So I'll pause there and I'm sure uh, Drex would have some additional perspective on that. I, you know, I was just going to say, I'm glad we're recording this because I feel like, you know, this has kind of turned into a master's class, right? Of, of kind of listening to these stories, you can tell how much experience everybody has, um, you know, talking about um, the unintended use of systems and, you know, the reality that we've all been through the, yeah, we're buying it for this, but then it turns out six months later, they're doing something completely different mm-hmm. with that system. And it's, and it's driving everybody crazy because we never planned for that. Just those kinds of experiences you can't get unless you've been in the trenches and taken those beatings and you just know to look for them now and to ask those kinds of questions. And then, um, you know, Sanjeev's point about just you have to talk to your partners on their own channel. My brain works in analogies, but like if you like to communicate on channel two all the time and the person that you're talking to is on channel seven, you're going to miss each other. It's part of our job as executives to figure out what channel our partners are on and change to that channel so that we can talk to them in a way that lets them understand why we have the requirements that we have and why we're asking them for the things that we're asking for and allows them to communicate in their own way of communicating what their requirements are and why they're challenged with the things we're asking them about. And if you can't figure that out, you're going to miss each other. And as a result, you're going to introduce risk into the organization that you did not anticipate, that you probably could have if you would have just, you know, taken the additional steps. So it's, it's just, it's great fun to hear uh, Ron and Sons, you talk about this because, you know, clearly there's, a, there's years and years of experience here. I have a couple of follow-ups, Ron. Let me let me start with you. One is you talked about a process for reviewing uh, software, uh, different tools that stakeholders may want. Um, I would imagine a big part of uh, the regard with which an organization holds your department is how quickly these things get processed. If a review of a desired piece of software takes six months or a year, you're not going to be very popular. Right. So speed, my point is speed enters into this in terms of user satisfaction with you. You want to protect the organization from a risk point of view, but you also have to do this quickly. So your thoughts around that. And then one other question, you know, I, when I asked you about are you dealing as a department with this with the internal stakeholders or the vendor, I was thinking that you would never want to be in a situation where the stakeholders make the request and it goes over to security. And then, like we talk about transparency, then they're not involved until an answer gets spit out of uh, security, which could be no. That's what you don't want, right? Because then it's all on you. They don't know under, understand anything about what happened. They just know it was rejected. So your thoughts there around the speed with which you want to process these requests and reviews and then keeping the stakeholders in the loop when you're doing the review of the new toy they want. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, and by the way, uh, sometimes speed uh, 
or velocity, depending on the way you want to look at it, does not really work out that well. And all, like I said, all many cases depends on the initiative. So when uh, the first thing is any throughout this process, the security staff and we do um, should have some type of service uh, level target. I mean, if it's 15 days, if it's 30 days, if it's one day for emergencies, there should be some idea what the target is. I mean, there are only so many people and uh, so many things that you can do around these things. In addition to that, um, of having a service level target, you need to have an exception process. In other words, um, when can it just, when can the organization and uh, bypass it? And uh, it sounds terrible in a way, but, and at what level, who can approve that type of bypass? In other words, we're just gonna go ahead and accept what we have out of this based on any initial diligence we receive from the vendor and go with it. And emergencies arise. And by the way, so the program itself needs to be have that level of adaptation. So it should have just a general level of tiers of service and then an exception process for emergencies when something absolutely has to be done, who's authorized to approve that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, sure, lead times are really hard to do when you're dependent on other parts of the organization maybe to do something. Maybe you're at the contract level and you're relying on a contract owner to get a series of questions, initial questions, profiling questions answered. Their delays can run there. Um, delays can run in just a general technology review within the technology teams who are not really understanding what the, the internal um, owner of the new thing is trying to do. And there's just, so the security team is heavily dependent on other parts of the IT organization and the extended organization to kind of understand what's going on. And that should be accounted for at some level in the process. And this kind of leads into how we communicate. And um, what I tell the risk staff and my risk team handles the bulk of this is that continuous communication is important. Even if there is no updated status, a status goes out to the owners and say exactly where we're at in the process, where the constraints and points of friction are, uh, what is required by them or who we're waiting on, full transparency to understand where we're at, where they're at in the workflow in relation to the larger approval that's going on for the new technology or service that's being developed. And I think those are really important things. And we talked about communication earlier and how important that is. And this is one of those areas that can get a little sticky for many CISOs out there is that kind of how things are getting through that queue effectively. And should we recall, in many cases, security is the one area that would stop something. Um, mm -hmm. In many cases, sometimes the IT staff is pretty much just going to consume the problem and figure out how to deploy it with what they have. But security, in many cases, might be that one stopping point other than some compliance issues, legal problems. <laughs> so <laughs> that's really important that, you know, when I always tell the staff, know your... <laughs> You got to understand, we just we never say just no. We rarely ever do that. And frankly, that would be to wait to the end of a large process and say, nope, we're not doing it is very, that would be very troubling for most in the organization. I think we're counting on a new capability to do their work and provide value in the organization. So that would be, so for us, it's very much about communication and expressing those service targets. Rex? Yeah, again, I, you know, great explanation, I think, of, you know, looking at this process, the other thing I would say is that in my experience, 
Um, having the teams really closely aligned, really well embedded with business clinical and research leaders so that they can anticipate these things coming. There's not sort of a documented and throw it over the wall process, but if you can tear the wall all the way down and you're kind of embedded in what they're doing, you can almost advise and guide them in the direction that they should go when it comes to technology solutions that help facilitate the business or clinical or research processes that they've built. And when you can do that, you can also guide them toward more secure solutions that offer less risk for the organization, but help still satisfy all the requirements that they have. It's just, you know, um, again, this is kind of back to the make sure that you're on their channel and you're on their channel all the time. And if you are, you're way more likely to be able to sort of intercept these things really early on instead of being the office of no, which is nobody wants to be, you know, those folks. You know, Jarex, just to add on to that, I had general, my general counsel um, many years ago, I've been at Texas Health for 10 years, Hmm. many years ago, I guess many would be about probably five to seven years ago, (laughs) said, hey, we need security needs to be part of the DNA of the organization. And it really about, um, and that's where CISOs really come into this. And it's about deputizing those internal stakeholders. And the closer we move the, the validation of security requirements into those areas of work and make it part of what they do. It's hard and it's not perfect, but the more you can deputize people, the more you can integrate and extend the program responsibilities outward, the more effective the program becomes as a whole. But when you get into these process level issues, you find that they just work a little bit better because there's a common understanding of what needs to be done. They start to be your advocates, right? right. In many ways, right? You 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 can, you can invite them to your staff meetings and things. They start to understand why you have the position that you have. Um, I have a really good friend who's a CIO, and um, I asked her, you know, a, a year ago, uh, how many how many security people did she have on her team? And she told me she had, you know, six thousand eight hundred twenty three. I mean, she was making the point that everybody in the organization had really sort of taken on the cybersecurity culture. And uh, yeah, to your point, Ron, that's really important. Yeah, uh, listening to uh, uh, Drex and Ron, uh, I feel like I need to go ahead and admit it on our behalf that we have overwhelming amount of requests compared to the capacity that we have. Uh, The couple of uh, uh, things that are embedded in that one, we are trusted advisor to to our stakeholders and our organization. And so the demand that we have on us to provide our perspective, either it's a, it's a response to say yes, or a modified um, architecture in one example to, to move forward with, or even having to say a hard no. Uh, all of those are part of our uh, portfolio of uh, work. And all of those examples are uh, relevant in our uh, organization. Now, I think what was really uh, 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 important message that that I'm hearing from Drex and Ron is that we need to leverage internal processes from IT governance, from business engagement to shortlist the, the amount of topic that we really need to provide perspective on and what uh, decisions can then be made based on standards uh, for security that we have uh, shared with our stakeholders. So for example, uh, let's talk about uh, uh, employing a mobile 
technology for uh, clinical communications. Uh, we, we've given uh, standards and guidance to uh, Architecture Review Board where um, a lot of uh, experts and minds are coming together to solution for that. And they have all the guidance that they need uh, to be able to uh, design a secure solution. And then uh, to the point that was made about exception, well, if, if the group has a deviation from what they would want us to provide perspective, it's a small subset then, right? It's not a, a full construct that we originally were moving forward with. So we try to give ourselves opportunity in the same way that my colleagues have described here, which is enable teams to leverage uh, standards and guidelines from a security perspective as much as possible. Uh, and then we are people who can provide uh, uh, perspectives that uh, requires uh, uh, further analysis or, or, or decision making. So that's one aspect. And second aspect of um, uh, how we would engage and, and be uh, within the so-called service level arrangements is, is really uh, expanding beyond just uh, the technical construct to even managing the portfolio of work that comes into IT and then comes into security. So having a uh, IT governance for prioritization of portfolio uh, gives us the best opportunity to then uh, deploy our uh, limited capacity uh, to those very important uh, projects uh, and where we must deal with a one-offs, uh, it's then much easier to manage that versus uh, you know, unmanaged portfolio. Uh, and then it completely can overwhelm any organization, not just mine. Yeah, in the, spirit of, in the spirit of everything's connected to everything else, IT governance is hugely important in this because there are lots of requests at the open end of that funnel, but the things that may actually become operational are a much lower number. And you can't put as a CISO, as a CTO, as a CIO, any part of the organization that's evaluating these things, you can't put your full effort into everything that is in that list at the open end of the funnel. You have to do an initial review and let it move to the next stage. And if it clears some hurdles with IT governance or with, with organizational governance, as it gets a little bit closer to really becoming an operational product, you can do a little closer review. As it gets closer to the end of the funnel, you can put your full shoulder against it. But you should catch all the important, like if you're really going to say a solid no on something, you should be able to catch that pretty early. At the end of the funnel, right before it's going through the final processes of this is going to probably in the next few months, a project, this is a project we're going to do. That's the point at which you can really build in the full cost. You understand if there's responsibilities that you're going to need to add FTEs to the CISO's department or to the CTO team or something to be able to, to run that product more, more complete. You start to really define those numbers later on. But man, trying to throw your shoulder against everything at the front of that list is just, there's no way we ever have enough resources to do that. So the governance part of this is really, really critical. It, it just saves everybody's life. Ron, anything else you want to add on that? Um, I don't think so. I would just, at the end of this, one of the keys is what, and we had talked about risk earlier, and, and I think one of the core duties of a CISO is that once it's all said and done, and whatever decisions were made along the way, 
that uh, that risk, that latent kind of exposure, whatever is left over the residual risk, all those things have to be inventoried and carried back in and repeated back into the program. Because at this point, you know, as new technology comes in, new services come in, the CISO is inventorying this risk along the way and is building views so stakeholders can understand the, the kind of the risk that is growing over time or maybe even shrinking. It all depends on how those populations are defined, but it's really important that this all feeds back into the larger program can be articulated and how well things are going at an aggregate level and within these kind of very distinct populations of work. All right, well, time for my favorite segment, ask a co-panelist. I'm gonna put our friend Drex DeFord on the, t on the spot. Drex, a question for one or both of your co-panelists. Yeah, I'm going to ask, I think, the same question uh, for both. So um, it's really interesting to, you know, have had some conversations with you prior to this and then here. Um, you know, you're both involved in so many things. Uh, Ron, I think you just finished your law degree. hope it's okay if I say that um, out loud. Congratulations. And, you know, yeah, um, almost done. I, I almost done. Last almost class. Done. One more class to go. Very cool. Okay, awesome. And Sanjeev has other responsibilities outside of security. And I mean, if I was a betting man kind of watching his progression at some point, he'll wind up as a chief operating officer somewhere down the road. But as you look out into the vastness of all of these young cybersecurity folks that are coming into the industry right now, um, what advice would you give them, the newest folks, the folks who are just coming onto the team? What organizations should they belong to? What kind of things should they be paying attention to? I mean, it's a, it's a great opportunity here, I think, to hear from both of you about what would you tell the newest of the cybersecurity pros coming on board? Sanjeev, we'll start with you. Yeah, yeah Drex, uh, um, thank you for your kind words and uh, what an important uh, question. A anyone really uh, uh, watching uh, the cybersecurity uh, uh, industry uh, in any um, area of um, uh, work, really, there couldn't be a better time and opportunity to serve uh, in a, a mission of a given organization. Uh, for me, uh, really that translates into how we make uh, and reimagine a patient experience. Um, it translates into transforming patient care and clinician efficiency. It translates into mobility and operational efficiency. Um, with cybersecurity uh, uh, providing assurance for continuity of business operations. All of those and impacting lives in a positive manner with uh, the talent that uh, one uh, can bring combined with passion is really what this world is looking for. So really, there's, I can't find a better way to contribute to the society to the world, to the organization, uh, and I find it fascinating. Uh, let me uh, share an example with you. Uh, I have the for fortunate opportunity of um, uh, leading a uh, new hospital build uh, from a technology perspective, um, uh, besides uh, working on uh, security matters. And, and um, I'm having an opportunity to partner with uh, uh, executive um, leaders uh, clinical leaders, operational leaders, IT uh, leaders, 
contributors and staff and, and experts from all aspects of technology life. And just seeing uh, that work uh, uh, combined with um, uh, expertise uh, brought to us from third parties, uh, translation to what I talked about at the beginning of my response, which is how it shows up for our patients and how it shows up for our clinicians. Uh, that's a fascinating opportunity. So I'm going to pause there because this question is going to give me an opportunity to keep going the entire hour and, <laughs> and not have anyone else an opportunity. So I'm definitely going to pause there. All right, Sanjeev. Thank you, Ron. Yeah, sure. Um, so I would, by the way, a great question. Um, the first, for somebody just coming into the profession, and the first thing I'm going to say is what, what, it, what will make people successful in this profession is really diversity of experiences. And that's kind of, I, Sanjeev was nailing it. It's, it is even at our, once we're here, it's still about diversity, diversity experiences. And Drex had mentioned, yes, I'm doing a law program and I'll be done with that complete. I'll, I'll be complete with that soon. But I would just say is I, I think I maybe have mentioned to Drex, if not, he'll learn it now is I always tell people everything I learned about, um, I mean, successful in cybersecurity, to be very honest, I learned years earlier uh, working in the military and and serving as a maintainer uh, for uh, KC-130s and Harriers and, and working in quality insurance in that area because you learned safety. You learned about uh, the discipline of maintaining aircraft and lives are at stake. All those things came into play about how work is performed, quality management, um, so I would tell young people, it's, it's about diversity of experiences. It's not just about security stuff, okay? Those are important and nailing down skills and being an expert in the assigned discipline that you, that you enter into within security is important because everyone should be good at what they're doing or trying to be good. But also what really how growth happens is by diversifying those experiences improving mental models around the way you see things work in the uh, world itself applies directly into like complex ecosystems like healthcare. It's very difficult to secure healthcare once you start really understanding what healthcare is because of its diversity in its own right within and complexity of the ecosystem. It is just so much stuff going on that it can be hard to wrap your head around. So as you grow, you want to improve your mental models. Anything from, you know, taking a class on, this might sound silly, but on quantum physics or thermodynamics or systems theory, as you get move along in the profession, probably much later on. But it is important to develop good mental models because of the sheer amount of complexity that's presented to a CISO. And the only way to negotiate and navigate that without getting buried so far in the details you become ineffective is by being able to step back and relate it to something else a bit. And um, that comes from both experiences and knowledge gained. So that's what I would pass along to a young person coming into the profession. So Ron, I got reminded of one more thing that I wanted to add then, um, because you articulated it so well. I, I think it's important that the passion component of then using your talent and skills to solve business problems it is really how it comes together at the end of it. And, and you're right, the healthcare uh, technology setting is extremely uh, complex and 
you know, you can't have cookie cutter solutions for uh, the challenges that we face as uh, CISOs or, or practitioners. And so really kind of getting your root in uh, learning how cyber hygiene works, um, how you could get visibility into cyber threats and being able to take action in, a, in an orchestrated way, um, uh, you know, kind of gives you a deeper understanding of security matters to solve business problems. And in a combination of that too, with your passion that you bring, uh, would, would, would take you very far uh, in the cybersecurity world. All right, uh, we're getting close to the end here. I think we've got time for a, a lightning round of final thoughts, uh, final pieces of advice. So uh, Sanjeev, let's start with you, your final parting thought for your fellow CIOs and CISOs. Well, first of all, just an awesome an opportunity to have been in a dialogue with uh, Anthony Yu, Drex and Ron. Uh, I'll be quick. Uh, uh, new CISOs, um, you know, have to be seen as uh, business uh, problem solvers, uh, risk managers, who then pay serious attention to cyber hygiene, how ensuring safeguards and controls are widely deployed. And, and to my comment earlier about visibility and action, we need to make sure that we actually have visibility into um, risks, threats, and exposures so we can take a, a, a good action. Then a CISO, uh, employ courage. And I, I believe that's an important aspect of the role in serving as a risk officer and then serving as a trusted advisor. Uh, always to uh, remain focused on why we are in the organization to begin with, which is to enable business and, and leverage technology to transform care for our patients and, uh, uh, and improve their outcomes. Perfect. Ron? Well, well, that was really good. And I actually wrote some of that down. Thank you, Sanjeev. That's what I did too. I did too. Masterclass. Masterclass. Um, I, um, I would just say is... Um, from a, a CISO practitioner perspective, it is really important that um, as, you know, and I reflected on this a few years ago, um, is I basically about few, three years ago, I, I did a lot of reflection and came to the realization that I, I felt this was really going, bypassing my knowledge base. And I really didn't understand uh, the risk I was managing, the architecture I was managing, and was I was I was I doing the right things for the organization um, for the future? And I think being as a CISO, you have to step back and reflect, collaborate with peers, and um, really ask yourself: Am I doing the right thing in the organization? And if you're not, don't let uh, don't be hesitant. The courage comes into play to say, you know what? I think we're on the wrong trajectory. It's it's okay to say, you know what, we need, might need to subtly start changing directions and here's why. And that's the courage part. It happens in complex organizations all the time. You just have to be brutally honest and, and, and clearly articulate uh, the whys behind those things. So once again, it's about reflection for CISOs, make sure we're doing the right thing. Are we maintaining the right skills? Uh, are we bringing in the right people who can help us? Remember, this is a multi-party problem. It's not just a CISO problem statement. And so building those relationships and once again, improving your own knowledge and skills um, for the future is really important. That's what I would pass along. 
Thanks. Excellent. Drex, we'll give you the last word. Yeah, man. I mean, that this is all great. Uh, you know, we heard a lot of good stuff today just in the last little segment, um, you know, about passion and, you know, diversity, diversity of the experiences that you figure out how to give yourself so that you can think in a different way because of the collection of experiences as Ron talked about. But I would also say, you know, the diversity of your team, because if you have diverse people on your team who come from other backgrounds and experiences, you're way more likely to catch issues and problems because they think about the world in a different way from how you think about the world. And then, you know, these ideas of transparency and humbleness and encourage the courage, as Sanjeev talked about earlier, about you've made a decision about something, don't feel cemented to that decision, the world changes around you, the technology changes around you. And sometimes you have to go back and look at those decisions and say, that was a great decision for that time. But that's not something I'm going to stick with. Now I'm going to I'm going to think about you know, a new way of doing something, that kind of courage actually is incredibly important too. And I think it's one of the things that you see as a, um, as a core tenant for a lot of the most successful uh, folks in our business. So uh, thanks for having us. This is, this has been great. I really enjoyed the conversation and, um, you know, like, like Sanjeev, I think I could probably go on with this for another hour. It's been great fun. Well, my final takeaway is if you're going to interview with Ron, you better take some classes in quantum physics and be ready to demonstrate <laughs> it won't your be knowledge. That deep. <laughs> it won't be that deep. Okay, very good. All right, that's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. Do you want to sponsor an event with us? You can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our website. To register for upcoming webinars with that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Ron Merring, Sunjeev Sah, and Drex DeFord. I want to thank CrowdStrike for making this event possible and our attendees for coming. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.